Welcome to The Middle Way. I'm Dr. Matthew Goodman, a clinical psychologist and clinical assistant professor at the University of Southern California. This podcast is about bridging the divide between human beings and discovering innovative and practical solutions to the world's problems based on the principles of interconnectedness, common humanity, and radical compassion. Thank you so much for being here. In this episode, I have the very special treat of talking with a true gem in our country today. Her name is Monica Guzman. I'll introduce her with her bio, and then I will talk a little bit about why I'm so excited to have this conversation with her. Monica is a bridge builder, journalist, and entrepreneur who lives for great conversations sparked by curious questions. She's director of digital and storytelling at Braver Angels, which is the nation's largest cross-partisan grassroots organization working to depolarize America. So you can see why I was interested in having her on the show. She is the host of a live interview series at CrossCut and co-founder of the award-winning Seattle newsletter, The Evergrey. She was a 2019 fellow at the Henry M. Jackson Foundation, where she studied social and political division, and a 2016 fellow at the Nyman Foundation for Journalism at Harvard University, where she researched how journalists can rethink their roles to better meet the needs of a participatory public. Monica was named one of the 50 most influential women in Seattle. She served twice as a juror for the Pulitzer Prizes, and she plays a barbarian named Shadrock in her bestie's Dungeon and Dragons campaign. I hope I got that name right. She's a Mexican immigrant, Latina, and dual U.S.-Mexico citizen, and she lives in Seattle with her husband and two kids and is the proud liberal daughter of two conservative parents. So I've personally been following Monica and her work with Braver, Braver Angels for the past few years. She'll tell us a little bit about the organization, but as you can imagine, could not be more crucial to what our country needs today as far as helping to diffuse the tension between left and right and finding bridges and commonalities between us. One of the things that I realized while I was talking to Monica is that I've been really focused in this podcast about finding middle ground between different views, reconciling differences, and almost finding this third middle way that's some mix of left and right. Not all the time, but some of the time. And Monica raises the really important point that this process and the healing process of bridging the divide between us is not necessarily about finding more centrist views. It's not even necessarily about finding compromise in the middle. We can have strong political opinions and feel very, very firmly grounded in our own values on our particular side, and at the same time, have a deep understanding and a deep respect for someone else's political opinions and personal values. 
that's really what this work is about. And Monica does a great job of explaining that. So in this episode, we talk about Monica's experience of being a daughter of two Trump voting parents when she is someone who identifies as liberal. Um, She tells us about the different types of polarization that we face in our country, including something called perceived or false polarization. Monica explains why she believes curiosity is the strongest antidote to polarization. And she writes about this in her book called I Never Thought of It That Way. She also explores with us in the podcast and in her book why some folks, especially those of us on the left, I would say, tend to have more empathy for the in-group for our own tribe versus having empathy and compassion for people outside of our group, despite the fact that we hold up empathy and compassion as one of the most important values. It's difficult to extend that outside of one circle. Monica tells us about this uh, simple but practical activity of building what she calls short bridges with people. She tells us about the origin story of the Braver Angels organization and the work that it's doing across the country, including with, yes, some of our members of Congress, those that are interested in in, um, building bridges with other members. We talk a little bit about what the future of debates might look like. And Monica, at the end, really provides us with a very passionate take on misinformation in our country. And I'm just going to read a couple of the quotes of what she talks about in this episode. And you'll hear them at the end. She says, if all you're doing is disqualifying people when they don't affirm facts, that doesn't address what's really underneath it all, which is people's concerns. The real work is listening to each other's honest concerns. And another quote, we're not going to build truth until we build trust. So I'll stop right there. I'll let her uh, do a much better job of explaining what she means by that. And then lastly, she caps off the conversation by giving us some tips for how to have productive conversations with other people in our life. Um, this is this is a great episode. Uh, Monica is truly a uh, treasure and someone that I wish we could just replicate um, a thousand or a million times over in our country because she really practices what she preaches. She embodies the ability to both have a point of view and truly listen and respect other people as well. And the work that she's doing and the work that Braver, Braver Angels is doing um, is just so, so, so important. So I hope that you check them out and um, enjoy this episode. I'm here with Monica Guzman. Monica, thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. So you are the author of a book called I Never Thought of It That Way, How to Have Fearlessly Curious Conversations in Dangerously Divided Times. And I'm going to hold it up here just in case Mm -hmm. some people are watching. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to get into why and how we're so polarized and what we can do about it. But what I thought we could start out with is if you can tell 
everyone a little bit about you and your background and maybe what motivated you to write this book. Mm -hmm. So I've been a journalist my whole career and I've taken very seriously the whole time this mission to help people understand each other. And I thought, oh yeah, the way to do that is go report, learn about people, tell their stories in the media, and that's going to be great. But over the last several years, it became pretty clear that things were fracturing so much across our society that simply telling stories in the media just kind of wasn't enough to help people understand each other, that there was this this foundational brokenness, this, this lack of trust, this fraying of a fabric that is understandable considering the kind of trauma that, <laughs> that our society has been going through, but that we need to address head on. And so I knew I needed to step back from simply being part of the media and look at it a different way and see if I could address that base problem. But the personal reason that I wrote this book has to do with me and my family. So I am the daughter of uh, Mexican, I'm a Mexican immigrant, my parents are Mexican immigrants, but I am liberal and voted for uh, Biden and then Clinton before, and my parents are conservative and voted twice very enthusiastically for Donald Trump. We've been citizens since the year 2000. My parents took the citizenship test, were really excited, you know, and like we adopted this country as our own. And we've had intense political conversations that grew extraordinarily intense along with everybody else's in the 2015 presidential campaign. So the wild thing is we actually managed to have these really heated conversations. We're a very unfiltered family. Like we yell at the top of our lungs. You don't know where you always know where you stand with my mother. You know, we're not, we're not polite. That's not a thing. And yet, and yet we've, we've gained understanding about each other and we've kept the relationship really strong. We don't agree, but we understand the reasons why we disagree. And that has made all the difference in the way that I look at the world and the way that they look at the world. So it was that contrast between, all right, somehow we've been able to do this. And, and so what, what can be learned? What, what is in our way as a broader society when it comes to trying to see the world through other people's eyes. Again, not to agree, but to just see where they're coming from. And that's why I wrote the book. Beautiful. Your family is a microcosm of what we're experiencing on a more macro level, it seems like. And the lesson that you were able to walk away with from that is, it sounds like, is that um, I can still disagree with my family. We can have loud and heated arguments, but I can also love them and maintain a relationship with them at the same time. So just, you know, just to, to, um, add in here, I also can re- relate to that as well. Um, I'm someone who's, you know, liberal has voted liberal my entire life. Both of my parents voted for Trump as well. So I think we have been going through a similar mm-hmm. experience and it's really taught me a lot. And my relationship with my parents is just as good as it's ever been, but that was with some conscious, um, decision to, maintain and keep our relationship strong despite our differences. Mm -hmm. So um, you, you point to some research in your book um, that describes three different types of polarization. And I think that we're experiencing all three, but one of them is ideological polarization. 
The other one is affective polarization. And then the third is perceived or false polarization. Mm -hmm. And I, if I'm understanding correctly, it seems like that third one maybe is like the most insidious one, Uh, or maybe they're all harmful, but can you describe maybe what this false perceived polarization is and why it's so harmful to our society? Yeah, so there's been all kinds of social research into this, asking people on one side of the of the divide to guess at the views on the other side. And what keeps happening is that people exaggerate extreme views. People just get it wrong. We get these signals from the stories that circulate around us that the beliefs on the other side are more extreme, more threatening, more dangerous than they actually are. When you, when you go and pull the other side, it turns out, no, the views are not that extreme at all. And so we are basically surrounded by misperceptions, misperceptions about what other people believe. So we believe that we disagree far more than we actually do. Hmm. So that's, that's just not seeing reality. And so we need to stop and ask why that's the case. It's certainly because of the stories being told in the media, sure. But it's also one of the other polarizations you mentioned, affective polarization. Affective polarization is polarization based on how we feel toward each other, how the two sides feel about each other. And there was a study that showed that each side of the political divide assumes that the other side despises them (laughs) twice as much as they really do. So you know, one of the most reasonable reasons to hate somebody is because you think they hated you first. Uh, So (laughs) that's also a problem because as it turns out, as much as we want to believe that we are purely rational creatures, we're not. And our gut feel and our feel, (laughs) all our feels are very, very instrumental in what we believe about the world, how we act upon those beliefs. So affective polarization, I would say, is actually the most insidious one because that the, 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 the feelings are based on, it's, it's a vicious cycle. Um, we are afraid and we are suspicious, which leads us to lean toward assumptions about other people's beliefs that are not grounded on reality. But it also leans us toward fear and suspicion, which makes us not even want to approach the other side to find out what reality actually is. Right. So those two things are feeding into one another. And your, your prescription, so to speak, um, or one of the things that we can do to help to bridge this divide is around curiosity. Um, and that curiosity, it seems like, is helping to maybe offset some of that perceived or false polarization between us because we're learning about one another. And as we do that, hopefully it decreases the affective polarization as well. Mm-hmm. But I'm curious why, um, why do you think curiosity is such, is maybe the most powerful ingredient and not something else like empathy or mm-hmm. compassion or tolerance or something like that? Mm. Yeah. I, <laughs> what a great question. So empathy is great. Empathy is awesome. Uh, But (laughs) empathy can also fall prey to the silos that we build and the fracturing of our society. Um, When we are highly empathetic, it also can mean that 
we feel really good when the enemy is suffering. If, if, if we think that somebody is really causing a lot of harm, uh, we're not necessarily empathetic toward them just because we tend to be empathetic. We'll be empathetic toward the groups we think are being harmed and you know the ones, the people that we care for. So empathy by itself isn't enough. Curiosity is about putting doorstops in the hallways of your mind. When we're stressed and fearful and there's a lot of anxiety, it's perfectly understandable that we reach for what psychologists called NFC, uh, need for closure. We want an answer. We, we want to know what's going on because it's really uncomfortable to sit in so much uncertainty when things feel so threatening. So what we'll do is we'll tend to want to reach for the nearest answer and not allow uncertainty to stay open. The problem with that is once you think you know, you won't think to ask. Curiosity kind of dies. Every time we make a conclusion, it kills 100 possible questions. So it's curiosity plus empathy. Hmm. Curiosity plus empathy means I'm going to be empathetic, but I'm even going to be empathetic toward the people who I don't understand to such a degree that I'm afraid that they're harming my world. I'm even going to be empathetic enough to go and check it out, to ask some questions, to make sure that I am not assuming untruths. Um, because that's, that's really what we're doing a lot of. Assumptions are a kind of certainty. They close our mind to questions as soon as we believe them. But assumptions are answers to questions we haven't even bothered to ask. We haven't asked it. Your brain just answered the question by itself. <laughs> well, those people are clearly so-and-so. Are you sure? You sure about that? You know, what if you what if you checked it out? What if the thought pieces you're reading online aren't really giving you the whole story? Yeah. You were describing some research as well. Um, and you were just alluding to this, how people that tend to be more empathic this, actually tend to have more animosity or hate towards people of the out group. And this is something that I've been observing so much, um, at least in recent years, I'm going to pick on people on the left a little bit because that's maybe where I fall. And it's just easiest to understand those, those brains, but so much of the work and the messaging that we're doing is around, seems like it's around empathy and compassion, but it also seems like that really just there's, it falls short. It's, it's within our own group and it's so hard for people to extend that same empathy and compassion towards people who they don't like people who hate them. And I mean, this is really what your message and braver angels is all about is really trying to understand people on the other side. What would you say, or like, how can people, um, if you, if you, let's just give the example of like someone on the, I believe someone on the other side, you know, thinks that I don't have the right, I don't deserve reproductive rights, or mm -hmm. I don't deserve, 
you know, rights as an LGBTQ person or something like that. You truly believe that the other person on the other side hates you and doesn't believe you should exist. How can I have empathy and compassion for that? When did that harm me? What would you say to that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the first thing to say to that is that there's no blanket prescription on any of this. Each of us is a completely different calculus of, you know, difficulty level to approach other people. So depending on your identity, you know, the beliefs, your attachments, uh, how much, how much meaning, you know, you, you derive from your positions and perspectives, of course, it's going to be next to impossible to, to talk to somebody that is really, really far on the other side. Uh, as I, as I put it fairly crassly, just to release tension in some of these conversations, uh, you don't have to talk to a Nazi tomorrow. That's not the ask, you know, that's not what, that's not what's being asked. That's not what is even necessary at all. Um, what, what is necessary is for each of us, wherever we are, to get one step more curious. So if you tend to talk to nobody, you know, talk to somebody. Uh, if you are really uncomfortable talking about reproductive rights and Roe v. Wade and abortion, okay, pick another issue. You know, pick an issue where it doesn't feel quite so, <laughs> quite so rough. Um, so, it's, so it's about that. Uh, there's a wonderful thinker, John Powell, who talks about building short bridges you know, you don't need to bridge with the devil, you know, don't start there, just <laughs> build the short bridges and the shortest bridge that you can build the, the, the easiest way to begin practicing curiosity that makes longer bridges easier later is just to get curious with yourself. And you don't even need to have a conversation with another person and put yourself into such a vulnerable position if that's how it feels. You can go online and next time you see a headline that represents a perspective that feels really threatening to you, but that you know is a popular one and widely held, then open that article and ask yourself, what are, what are the deep down honest concerns that this person, this writer is, is trying to express? What are the deep down honest concerns that I can see? And then maybe ask yourself, what's the strongest argument on their side? Now, you, you sort of frame things in an interesting way. You said, you said like, you know, if people don't believe I should have reproductive rights, I think is one way you put it. Or if people hate me um, and don't, what, what was it? Something about LGBTQ rights. So part of it, part of it is also being curious about how we are framing these things, right? Like, like I've heard people say around vaccines and vaccine mandates, you know, they don't value freedom. That side of the mandates debate doesn't, doesn't care about freedom. Really? Is that really it? Is that really what's motivating people who, who, who prefer, you know, there to be vaccine mandates that they don't value freedom? That's unlikely to be true. And so we also need to be curious about how we are labeling and what kind of motives we assume, you know, are underneath somebody's opposition to some policy or apparent opposition to all of us. Like, are they really opposed to everything we are? Or is there something we're missing? If we went and we got a little more curious, we might find out that no, it's not that this person doesn't believe you should have reproductive rights. They look at it very differently. They're the locus of their views is somewhere completely different. And so walk their path. And again, you might completely disagree and you'll end up in conclusions that are just wildly opposed, but you might find that they're not motivated by something as malevolent as you assume. Mm -hmm. The frame is so powerful as you're describing it. And it seems like it's so much about how we're using language to describe these things, to create that frame. 
And it's so intoxicating to create these frames that really other the other people and, and paint them, make them out in our minds to be more extreme than they actually are. But we have these, we really have more commonality and shared values underneath the surface. So I remember watching a documentary film, maybe a couple years ago from Braver Angels, where there was a group of reds and a group of blues that came together, maybe about like 10 or so on each side. And you know, they couldn't be more ideologically opposed, but they spent, I don't know, like a weekend together. It was almost mm-hmm. like a retreat sort of atmosphere. Can you tell us about that um, experience and what mm-hmm. what people learned and what came out of it? Yeah. So that was the experience that started Braver Angels. When that happened, Braver Angels didn't exist. What it was, was um, David Blankenhorn and David Lapp and Bill Doherty, who's a renowned family therapist, getting together and saying, oh my gosh, this 2016 election is tearing everything apart. What can we do? And so they ended up getting 10 uh, Trump voters and 10 Clinton voters together in a church in South Lebanon, Ohio. And they, 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 like, they went out, they, they talked to people, you know, they kind of interviewed them and, and understood, would you be willing to try this? And then Bill helped moderate that session using um, methods he's gleaned from years of marriage and family therapy. And so it's, it's this, it's this, uh, it's this integration of what we know about what keeps couples from divorce, um, the kind of understanding, the kinds of reset buttons, um, the kinds of space that you have to allow for people to see each other as human and to understand where each other is coming from. That's what that workshop was all about. I recently talked to Bill I was in Minneapolis, which is where, where he lives. And uh, he told me more about that first workshop, how, how afraid they were that it was just not gonna work, that it was gonna blow up and be a total disaster. And then how it wasn't, it was not a disaster. And in fact, they thought, oh my gosh, more of this has to happen. More of this has to happen. So within months they did a bus tour and they just got a bunch of other folks who seemed interested in this and they started Bussing around the country. And that's where some of the first Braver Angels alliances started. So we have 74 local alliances across the country, cities and towns today. And now there's, I don't know, upwards of like 50 offerings, different kinds of workshops for social media, for depolarizing within, for families divided by politics, our famous red blue workshop that's been studied by Brown University, all kinds of different structures and tactics to help people slow down and take a look at each other and get past their assumptions to the reality. Hmm. What other sorts of um, resources and experiences can people find through Braver Angels? You mentioned workshops. I know that you guys hold uh, public debates as well. Um, what else are, the, the work is, I mean, cannot be understated how important this is. Um, tell us what else, what else uh, people can get involved with. Yeah, well, I have to echo the debates, Braver Angels debates. That was basically maybe one of the biggest reasons I ended up working at Braver Angels is when I saw my first debate, it was March of 2020. No, it was April of 2020. And there was a debate about the lockdowns, which were very early at that point. And I could not believe the the power of people's perspectives, the way that this structure set up at Braver Angels debates allowed people to be really honest and give their own perspective without getting attacked 
without feeling defensive uh, and how all these people really were listening virtually from all across the country. And there were conservatives and liberals and I couldn't believe it. <laughs> how did they do this? Uh, we just had last Thursday, uh, a debate that we knew was gonna be really difficult. And the director of debates, April Cornfield has been telling everybody that it was one of the best experiences of Braver Angels that she's ever had. Uh, and it was about abortion and Roe v. Wade. So I have the video you know, sitting on my queue and I've gotta watch because everyone's telling me that this was boy, <laughs> you know, if you thought that there was no way that the people could talk about this, they can, they really can. So echo, echo Braver Angels debates. The other thing that I'll mention is a new initiative called Braver Politics, which takes all of these methods that we know work on the grassroots level and brings them to the halls of power. So, um, yeah, so Bill has been going to DC and a bunch of our other well-trained moderators uh, have been going there. We've done workshops with sitting members of Congress. We've done workshops with their staffs. Uh, people often don't think about the, the staff members of our elected representatives who have to pick up the phone and hear constituents yell and be so angry. And what do you do with that anger? How can you, how can you listen for the concern deep down, right? How, how do you how, yeah, how do you kind of tame that so that as an elected representative, you know what's going on? We've had candidates reach out to us, you know, wondering what can I, what can I do to come into this climate right now in a better way? Uh, we're developing candidate debates, which are going to revolutionize the idea of a political debate. Um, it's not going to be popcorn and like watching people hurl things at each other and big car crashes. It's going to be actual deliberative, understood paths that different candidates take. Uh, to, to their views so that um, citizens can actually make a good choice. So all kinds of exciting things happening there. Um, and that's at braverpolitics.org if anyone wants to check it out. Wow, I've got to follow up on this idea of having candidate debates. This is like a dream come true, I think, for so many people. Can you tell us more about what is in what ideas you have in store for that and what that might look like? Mm. The true answer is no, because I'm not on the team developing them. Uh, I know that there are, uh, there's, there's a couple coming to Washington state. I'm not even sure how much I'm like, I'm in Washington, but I'm not sure how much I'm able to say, but, um, but I, I think the simplest thing I can say is everything that, everything that we have learned from our workshops, everything that we have learned from the big Braver Angels debates, we're, we're putting into practice in these candidate debates. Uh, mm. And we have some, extraordinary people who take debate very seriously, but also this collective search for truth very seriously. And so, by the way, I should have said this, but Braver Angels debates never declare a winner. It's not about who wins at all. So in that way, it's not really a classic debate. It, it is about the collective search for truth. So, so I know that all those, all those things are informing the, uh, the method and the development. So yeah, as, as, we, as we get closer to the elections, we're going to be seeing some really really cool things. Wow. I love that. And I'm so excited. I can't tell you how satisfying it is. Um, I mean, I think the, the evidence that people want to hear civil conversation is in the fact that like podcasts are so popular. You have, um, people will sit down and listen to, you know, an hour, two hour, three hours of a podcast of people going back and forth on different ideas. I think there really is a craving out there for this type of, you know, empathic conversation to happen. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm curious, you know, you mentioned that uh, Bill Doherty and others had gone to 
Congress, I believe, and, mm-hmm. and facilitated some of these conversations. Um, are some people receptive to doing this depolarization work and how has that generally gone? Oh, absolutely. You mean people in Congress? Yeah. 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 Oh yeah. No, I mean, that's, you know, as a journalist, someone in the media a long time, it's, it's been a really cool kind of wake up call to realize that there is such a difference between the stories being told about our politicians and the reality on the ground. Uh, for obvious reasons, it's the conflict that spreads and the conflict that gets stories told about it. But you know, to give one example, there is a group of legislators in the U.S. House of Representatives that most Americans don't know about, but we all should. And it's called the Committee to Modernize Congress. And that's made up of 12 legislators, six Democrats, six Republicans. Uh, it's chaired by Derek Kilmer here in Washington and Charles Timmons in, I believe, South Carolina. And, you know, they're Democrat and Republican. And their goal is to fix Congress, to fix it. And one of their number one priorities is the dysfunction of polarization with, within our, our legislative branch. Um, I mean, all Americans know this, right? The, the approval ratings for Congress are abysmal. We, we don't expect very much <laughs> from them. And the truth is, you know, I've, I've had these conversations with, uh, with them as well. It's like, they, no, nobody there thinks this is good. <laughs> you know? It's like, imagine going to work. It's, it's one of the most toxic work environments in our country. It really is. And when you talk to them kind of behind the scenes, right? They'll tell you it, it sucks. It sucks to, to, to come in and have been elected to govern and to represent and then to be in this in this stuck system where you kind of have to play these games and you're not really sure that what you're spending your time on is actually serving your public. And then when you do do things that serve your public, it appears not to be getting a lot of attention. And it's it is such a morass over there. <laughs> so, yes, are people receptive to this? Absolutely. <laughs> they really, really are. Um, you know, U- USA Today, just in the last week and a half, I think has written two national stories about what we're doing in Congress. So, so yeah, it's, it's happening. And there are state legislators, there are mayors, um, there's people up and down, uh, elected representatives all across the country who, who have really had enough. And, and, and in some ways, you know, I told you in the beginning of this conversation that I kind of reached a point as a journalist where I said, I can't, I can't do what journalism is meant to do unless I step back and solve this problem or at least try. And I think that there's more and more politicians doing the same thing, mm-hmm. that they're sitting in office and going, well, <laughs> everything I'm trying to do is getting held back by this. Mm-hmm. So I have a choice. I can just kind of sit back and watch it happen or I can lean forward and try to do something about it. Hmm. And so, yeah, there's, and Brave Angels is not the only organization, you know, trying to help out. There are lots, um, but it's, it's a movement and it's growing. Mm-hmm. My initial thought or belief was that some of these, you know, senators and congressmen, mayors, et cetera, that they were maybe facing a conflict of interest between seeing this increasing polarization and not being happy with it on a personal level. And then maybe what actually serve them politically as far as benefiting from increased polarization. But it sounds like what you're saying is that there are some people who are either A, recognizing that uh, this is not healthy and we need to do something, or B, this actually isn't really serving me politically. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's not serving constituents. You know, yeah. I think, I think people know, I think most people kind of know that. Yeah. Like there are, 
there are some politicians, we know who they are, I'm not going to name names, but there are some politicians whose whole brand is to be out there, you know, rah, rah, rahing for their side. And, and unfortunately, what that means in today's media climate is that you are putting down the other side pretty significantly, and you are using some tactics that can be really dehumanizing and ugly. And, you know, some, some of them are doing that. They're getting a lot of attention for it. Yeah. Uh, but they do not represent, they do not represent the whole. Um, yeah. So I, I have, I suppose I have some empathy for politicians being a journalist because I get it. You know, like I've had in my journalism career, there were several months where like my whole job was just to get as many clicks as I could on this one blog that I was writing. And I can tell you stories about some of the things that I did that I'm kind of ashamed of now to try to, to try to get as many clicks as I could, you know, turn up the emotion and sensationalism of the headline. Uh, keep, keep putting up a video that YouTube keeps taking down. Um, whatever, it whatever it took, whatever it took to get on the top of Google Trends, I knew how to do it. Right. And it was gross, but it was also what got rewarded. I get it. I know how hard this is. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, outside of this small subset of people who are really love the rah, rah, rah and love the polarization, I agree. I think most people really, really yearn for, I mean, just something more, more sensible and something that's more compassionate and brings people together. This might be a little bit more personal, but do you think that, you know, in the next coming years, a candidate who's just mm. more down the middle or someone who can try to bridge the divide, is that appealing to people? I mean, to me that I'm mm. kind of watering at the mouth at the idea of someone who, well, just for the, the sake of bringing to get people together, try mm. to be sort of a middle candidate. Mm. Um, mm. But do you think that there's a, a an appetite for that or are we kind of too far gone on these political extremes? Well, I think this is where this is where it's good to make a distinction. So a lot of people look at this bridging movement, Braver Angels and all these other organizations, and they think that what we're trying to do is elevate the center, that, that the only solution to polarization is to elevate the center, the, the political ideas of the center, but that is not what we're trying to do. Um, so, the, you know, yeah, whether a centrist, a more centrist candidate can survive or, or thrive, I think is a sign of how strong polarization is because polarization is about polarity, right? Like polarization is about only the poles survive. So I, I would think that in any situation, in any circumstance, even outside of like our society's political polarization, if you, if you see more things along a spectrum take root and take hold, it's a sign that you have a healthier deliberative type of dynamic, right? Where it's not just about either or, and that, you know, that's where we are now. So from that sense, it would be really cool. And I think there is a hunger for that. But, but for, for me, uh, the, 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 thing that, the thing to be pushed is less about ideology and more about temperament, mm -hmm. more, about, more about the how than the what. Mm -hmm. I think that's what there's an, there's an enormous hunger for. So on the left or the right, I think that there's plenty of room for a candidate that has all the same ideological beliefs, but comes at the entire political experiment very differently. Mm -hmm. You know, not with guns blazing, not with exaggerations at the ready, you know, not with this hypothesis that the only way to win, that all that matters is winning and the only way to win is, is to exaggerate and, and do whatever it takes. And, you know, I think that's what people are truly just 
tired of because we know that if you play out this movie, it will not end well. It's already destroying us. Like it just doesn't, it doesn't work. So that's what I think is it's, is it's not, it's not about the politics because <clears throat> going back to that distinction I was talking about, there really are severe political disagreements. They're not as bad as they look, but they're there. And we do need to not resolve them for all time, but we need to find the best balance for now. And in order to find the best balance in things like Roe v. Wade and abortion, my goodness, right? And things like guns, oh my God, we have to get better at seeing all of the stakeholders, putting all the concerns on the table and having the kinds of leaders who can do that, who can mobilize people to be honest and before they attack and judge to just explain, to just describe what they're thinking. And once we have that, you know, better policy becomes possible. Right now we're stuck in this terrible place where policies are reactionary and reckless and mostly based on fear of the other side. I think that's just, that is so honestly like embarrassing considering how smart and wise and amazing we all are. You know, we're, we're, we have, we're an extraordinarily intelligent, capable, connected society with so much to give. And this is the best we can do, really? You know? <laughs> We can't, we can't sustain that. It doesn't, it just does not reflect well. <laughs> it just doesn't. Monica, do you think that our politicians and our leaders underestimate the degree to which people would appreciate and actually support these types of behaviors and role modeling that you're describing? I really like the distinction between the how and the what. So as you're saying, it's not necessarily that you know, we would need a candidate who can conform their ideology to be right. in the center to appeal to people, but someone who can be firm in their beliefs and their values, but model this process of trying to seek truth and understand the other side and be transparent and admit mm -hmm. their flaws. Um, do you think politicians underestimate how much people would actually really like that? Yes. <laughs> they seem so afraid to do that. Definitely. But, but here's the thing is like right now the best way that politicians and all of us frankly have to see each other at scale is media. And media is just right now not incentivized and not interested in telling these kinds of stories and, and revealing the reality of what people hunger for. It's just the, the, the grooves haven't been, been like built in yet for that. They are coming. I do think they're, they're coming, but they're not there yet. And I've talked to, I've talked to several you know politicians in DC who, you know, they just kind of like sigh and go, we can only get on C-SPAN. There's just it's like, we can't get anywhere else with C-SPAN. You know what I mean? With this, with this stuff. And uh, so that's a problem. That's a severe problem. But, but it's also, it's not just a problem for the media in the institution of the media. Like every day, I don't say things on my social media publicly that I, sh that I probably should if, if I wanted to be truly honest every day, every day. Like I, I refrain from sharing those opinions because I just get these signals that they're not welcome. It'll be too exhausting to try to have these conversations right now. And so what happens? We all cede the ground to the people who have been online, understanding what it means to be viral and to, you know, scandalize and exaggerate. And they, I mean, they get rewarded all the time. They know what it means. They know how to hack our emotions and they have the upper hand. So you know, those of us who are like, ah, can we complicate 
this? Can we add some nuance? We're afraid of being attacked, you know, in all the ways. And so we're, we're creating this culture uh, that, that keeps, I think, all of us from seeing the hunger that is really in our hearts for a better way. Because we, modeling it is so difficult at scale. It's so difficult to champion it at scale. Even I, I wrote a book about this. Even I have a hard time. <laughs> like that's that's where we're at. So can't blame you know politicians or anyone else for underestimating the hunger that's out there. It's being whispered. We you know it's just whispers. I've, it's in my inbox. It's in my direct messages, but it's not bursting out yet. It's so sad to think about. Um, so I, I have a question about misinformation. I wanted to get your opinion on this. So um, I wanted to pivot there if that's okay with yeah. you for a brief moment. So um, you wrote in your book, and I'm just going to quote here, I'm done going along with the idea that if we could just rid the world of misinformation, everything would be fine, as if mowing down weeds would keep new ones from sprouting. Can you tell us what you mean by that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Uh, where to begin? <laughs> You've got me all wound up. Yeah, I'm um, sorry. <laughs> no, it's good. It's good. I, I have so much to say on this. It's really tempting to make this conversation all about facts. Um, you know, pe people either affirm facts or they don't and they reject them. And gosh, you know, what, what could be a better justification for judgment and, and dismissal than somebody not respecting truth, right? So there's a lot of people on both sides, I will say, who have ruled out folks who disagree with them because they're, they're idiots, they're evil, they also just don't see the facts. They don't accept the facts. So we you know what we've been doing with all the best intentions over the last few years is trying to keep misinformation from spreading. And it's, I mean, the efforts have been really, some of them have been really awesome and, and in some ways effective, but here's the problem. <laughs> if, if all you're doing is if all you're doing is disqualifying people when they don't affirm facts, that doesn't, that doesn't address what's really underneath it all, which is people's concerns. Mm -hmm. People's concerns about society, people's concerns about their lives, people's concerns about where the country's headed and what issues are going in what direction. That's everything. That's motivating everything. That's at the foundation. So every time that we that we say, you know, all these people are censored, you know, we're not going to write about this or that, we're not going to cover this or that, um, we're going to kind of demean and dismiss people who believe this, even though there's a lot of them. We're, we're just, we're actually getting farther away from the real work. And the real work is listening to each other's honest concerns. Before we judge them, we have to listen to them. Uh, but, but, but every time we disqualify people from the conversation because, because in our view, they don't, they don't agree with certain facts or they're spreading misinformation or whatever, 
we're, we're, we're not only keeping ourselves from the real work, but we're also pushing those people towards mm -hmm. spaces that are not going to be particularly diverse in their ideas. Like every human has to be seen. Every human will be seen and heard, you know? And if we don't see and hear each other, then people will find, oh, they will find people who will hear them. They will go online and they will find somebody and it may not be a very great somebody. And I think we've seen the results of that over and over and over again. It's like, if we leave each other to the jackals, we throw each other to the jackals, really? Instead of, <laughs> instead of coming in and listening and suspending our judgment long enough to understand someone else's truth, someone else's story, there's truth beyond facts. Come on, guys. There's truth beyond facts. You know, there's deeper truths. Um, uh, so yeah, I can... <laughs> I got, I got a little emotional there, but, but no, I, I really, really think that while it is so well-intentioned and, and there's a lot, I think, to love about what we're doing, trying to tamp down misinformation, I would rather live, I would rather live in a culture where, you know, uh, where everybody listened to, to all the ideas and the right and the good ideas bubbled up, uh, than a culture that has to keep putting walls up all the time one in another group here's another group here's another group now there's walls walls up against 100 groups now and now it's 20 groups and that's 10 i just don't think that's what we're built for now i'm getting emotional that was <laughs> gorgeous gorgeously put um i know that i could sit and talk to you here for many many more hours about this and so many other topics but um, I know that I have to let you go in a couple of minutes and I can't let you do that without picking your brain on some very practical ways that we can have these conversations with other people in our lives. Let's just say, for example, we have a friend or a family member, or maybe an acquaintance who we strongly disagree with. How can we start to have productive conversations with those people? Yeah. So first off, I think you have to be in the right, the right frame of mind, um, where, you can truly practice being curious with the goal of understanding more than wanting to change somebody. If, if you are going to go into that conversation wanting to change somebody, they're going to tell and it's going to blow up in your face. Don't do it. <clears throat> so now we all want to persuade everyone else to go with what we believe. That's just human nature. We've chosen our own views because we think they're better. So of course, we're going to want other people <laughs> to agree with us. That's fine. It's more about whether you can, you can come to a conversation ready to listen, to understand. So that's the first thing. If you are able to do that, the next best step is to approach this person and get their buy-in and actually declare the intent a bit. So, hey, Uncle Bob, <laughs> I know that, I know that you and I disagree quite a bit, at least I think we do, on, you know, abortion and Roe v. Wade. And I'm in a place right now where I'm, I'm feeling really curious and I, and I want to learn more about how other people view this. Uh, I have some strong feelings, as you probably tell, but, but I know that I should listen to other people's feelings too. And I, and I really want to understand. So do you have some time? Can we, can we talk about it? Can I ask you some questions about it? And then see what he says. And if he says yes, great. Then make sure that, that you find a well, you find a place that's comfortable and that there's enough time and that you really are listening to understand. And so, you know, among the things you can do to make sure you're doing that 
is like Uncle Bob is talking and Uncle Bob says something you don't like and all you wanna do is interrupt Uncle Bob. Don't interrupt Uncle Bob. So before you jump in with your opinion, ask another question, ask a curious question. Tell me more about that. Okay, wow, that's surprising to me. Can, can I, t- tell me when that happened to you. You know, stay with Uncle Bob. <laughs> Stay with Uncle Bob's story for longer than you want. Um, and and a, lot, a lot of pretty cool things will happen. Absolutely love that. Well, we've covered a lot of really interesting um, topics today, but is there anything else that you wanted to mention before we wrap up for today? Really, really appreciate you being here. Yeah, totally. Uh, just to, I guess, cap off a little more of the question on misinformation, I realized that I neglected to mention, you know, the... Uh, the, the, the main, the main thing that I think we need to work on is there there's truth and truth is everything. And as a society, we do have to have a collective search for truth, a conversation that involves all of us. The problem right now is that any conversation that's about the collective search for truth does not involve all of us because we're so fractured. So we have to get to a collective search for truth. And here's the thing in order to make sure that that conversation involves all of us, we're gonna have to build trust. Yeah, Building trust is a different process from building truth. Building trust means that you have to listen to someone without correcting them, that you have to hear them behind what you think, you know, what, what to you is like a straight up lie. You have to listen to them behind that because you're working on something different. And we're not going to build truth until we build trust. And so that's the other thing about misinformation is let's not let that get in the way of building trust. So well said. I mean, we started off this conversation maybe before we started recording by talking about this podcast and the idea of seeing us all as interconnected. And I mean... I love the way that you frame that. Um, the people on the other side, I think we have to trust that they have some knowledge, some wisdom that we're not seeing, almost like we're reflecting each other's blind spots on both sides. And to prioritize and prize this process of trust building versus what we think as truth or as ideas, mm-hmm. um, that reframe is so helpful is so, so helpful. So thank you for adding that. Um, Monica, so again, the book is, I never thought of it that way. Um, Where can people find your book? Where can they learn more about you and all of the work that you do? Yeah, so uh, you can learn more about the book and myself at moniguzman.com or reclaimcuriosity.com. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram and all the places at moniguzman.com at Moni Guzman, M-O-N-I-G-U-Z-M-A-N. Um, and I love, I love to hear from people uh, who are into these ideas. So please do reach out. Fantastic. Thank you again for being here. And thank you so much for being you and uh, all the lovely work that you do. Thank you, Matthew. Thank you so much again for listening. Remember that subscribing, rating and reviewing the podcast is very much appreciated. And I look forward to seeing you on the next episode.